Our scripture lesson tonight comes from Exodus chapter 6. It is in the middle of the Exodus story where God is saving his people from the Egyptians. Let's share in God's good word together. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, go and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his land. But Moses spoke to the Lord, the Israelites have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me, poor speaker that I am? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. This is my story. Well, this is our third and final week of our stories, and every story sits inside of someone else's story, inside of God's story. God is at work from Genesis to Revelation. All 66 books of the Bible tell one overarching story of God's love for humanity, for you, but not just you, for all of the world. And and, and the stories that we're looking at uh, last week and this week, we're particularly looking at God's salvation, God's help for his chosen people, Israel. If you have your sermon notes, I invite you to take those out, and we're going to review very quickly. Week one, Andy did an awesome job about telling us how God calls Abraham to a new place, to a new place. That's your blank there if you're following along. Abraham had been in one place for a very, very long time. He was an old man, and God says, pick it up and move it and go. And if any of you all have had to do that, you know how scary that can be, how anxiety-producing that can be. When God says go, and we're like, well, we're not really sure. We haven't ever been there before. God says go, and Abraham goes. And God takes care of the rest. He blesses him and blesses all nations through him. And then last week, we talked about how uh, my call was really very different than that. Uh, I really resonate with the call of Moses. God calls Moses to go back to Egypt, to go to something that he had intentionally left. That he knew what Egypt was like. He didn't like it. He, he left there. He was afraid of what was going on there. And so he left it. I grew up in the church as a preacher's kid. And there were some things that I really liked about the faith communities. But there was a whole bunch of other things about the system of which I grew up that I really didn't want to have anything to do with again. And so I would struggle about this call to go back into the life of ministry. To go back uh, and serve under a bishop where they can appoint you anywhere, anytime, every year. And so this week, we're going to continue to understand that God continues to call us wherever we are. That God's call isn't one time at one place for one person. God's call is continuous throughout your life. I love the way our neighbor down the street puts it, Craig Rochelle. He says, if you're not dead, you're not done. I think he's right about that. If you're not dead, you're not done. God calls us to many things over our lifetimes. And what you might be called to at 10 or 20 or 30 might change when you're 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 or 100. God calls us all the time and his calls are irrevocable and they're good. They're always good. And the question really is, will we respond? And how will we respond? And we respond in community as a part of other people's stories. In Exodus 4.18, I love the way Eugene Peterson writes the message. He says, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said, I need to return to my relatives who are in Egypt. I want to see if they're still alive. And Jethro said, go and peace be with you. Now, I don't know about you, but um, I'm not sure there's a harder relationship uh, than a man has with his father-in-law. And that's a very tenuous relationship. If you're honest, you're like, ooh, you know, there's one man that's always, you know, the toughest, and that's your father-in-law. And that, that's, just a, that's a, just a toughie. And so here is Moses. He's trying to be obedient to God. But to be obedient to God, he's got to go face his father-in-law. And he's going to take his father-in-law's daughter away. Or he's going to separate Zipporah out from the family. This is a very dangerous, scary thing that he's talking about. 
He says, I need to go. And here's the thing that, that Christians are loath to talk about, and that is this, that every act of faithfulness is an affront to someone. Every time you do what God asks you to do, somebody else is not going to be happy with it. When, when God says, I want you to do this, don't expect your friends and neighbors to line up and go, yes, I'm about time, yay, good for you, we're all behind you. Most of the time, when God calls you to something, your friends are like, what? That doesn't sound right to me. Are you sure about that? That doesn't sound like a good plan. And that's why it's so important that we have community and friends and family and prayer warriors around us. Every act of faithfulness is an affront to someone, particularly in times of solitude. I mean, you know, all you young families, you know, just tell your spouse that you're going to go away for, you know, a two-day silent retreat while the other one watches the kids. See how well that goes. Right? It's very difficult to be faithful to the things that God is calling us to do. And so God said to Moses in Midian, right? He's not in Egypt, he's in Midian. He says, go, return to Egypt. All the men who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons and put them on a donkey for the return trip to Egypt. They're out. And at this point, he had a firm grip on the staff of God. Now, I don't know about you, but there are a few days in my life where I'm doing what God wants me to do. It feels great. It is awesome. I have a firm grip on the staff of God, and I'm ready to go. Problem is, it doesn't last long. It just lasts Maybe a day or two, if I'm lucky, a week or two. Uh, if I'm really lucky, it, it happens when I preach and, and when I'm in front of people. You know, you, it's not good to kind of melt down when you've got an audience. You like to have those meltdowns when you're, you know, alone and in private, hopefully on a Monday afternoon when nobody's watching. You know, these, are, these are the times you want to have your meltdowns. So Moses, he goes back to the king of Egypt. He's had this firm grip on the staff of God, but here we are, we come to the problem. The problem is that things often get what before they get better? worse absolutely and that's true in this story as well the king of egypt says to moses why on earth moses and aaron would you suggest the people be given a holiday back to work pharaoh went on look i've got all these people bumming around and now you want to reward them with time off are you kidding me pharaoh took immediate action he sent down orders to the slave drivers and their underlings he said don't provide straw for the people for making bricks as you've been doing make them get their own straw and make them have the same output Make them produce the same number of bricks. No reduction in their daily quotas. They're getting lazy. They're going around saying, give us some time off so we can worship our God. Crack down on them. That'll cure them of their whining, their God fantasies. Oh, they love Moses now. Moses is going to help them. Moses is being faithful to what God's asked them to do. And things are getting what, friends? Worse. Worse. Now, this is instructive because... Truth is, in most of our lives, if we're trying to change something, it gets worse before it gets better, doesn't it? You try to get yourself out of debt. You try to get yourself in a more reasonable home. You try to get yourself on a better financial standing, uh, a better physical routine. Does it feel great the first couple of days? No, it doesn't. It's harder. It gets worse. And so this is what happens. The slave drivers were, say it with me, merciless. No mercy. Like, no. You, you want to shake up the system? Not on my watch. Merciless. Complete your daily quota of bricks the same number as when you were given straw. So now they have to do more work. Same pay. It's a bad deal. They're slaves. And, and this is what happens, isn't it? That, that when our life gets worse, when we try to follow God and it doesn't work out immediately the way we think, when bad things happen, we doubt God's goodness and plan. God is at work. God is working a plan that's going to free the, the, them from Egypt. Not only are they going to be free, but they're going to take all the goods and services with them. The Egyptians are going to give them silver and gold and riches and say, get out of town. But it's going to take a while to get there. 
It's all a part of the plan. But, but all the Israelites know is, hey, bad stuff's happening. It's worse than when Moses got involved, so let's get rid of him. So the story goes on like this. Moses went back to God and said, my master, why are you treating this people so badly? And why do you ever send me? From the moment I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, things have only gotten what? Worse for the people. And rescue? Does this look like rescue to you? Now he's talking to Almighty God, friends. Now this also tells us how awesome God is. That that God allows us to speak to him, to be honest with him, to say this is really what's going on with me. So look how God responds. Then God says to Moses, go and speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he will release the Israelites from his land. And Moses answered God, look, the Israelites won't even listen to me. How do you expect Pharaoh to? And besides, I I, I stutter. I mean, like, you could not have picked a worse guy, God. Now, I don't know about you, but so often when God calls me to do things, this is exactly how I feel. I'm like, yes, that seems like a really good plan. Please find somebody else. Yes, I see the need. I'll be happy for Andy to do it. It'd be awesome, you know, but, but not me. It looks good, but not me. When we doubt God, we waver. We waver. And then we, we act as if God's being unfair or unkind, and that could not be further from the truth. In baseball, how many strikes do you get? Three. With God and the Pharaoh, you get ten. More than fair. Three times fairer than baseball. Ten strikes and you're out when it comes to what God is going to do with the Egyptians. But you have to wait for it. You have to be patient. So God says to Moses, I'm going to hit Pharaoh and Egypt one final time, and then he'll let you go. When he releases you, that will be the end of Egypt for you. You won't be able to get rid of you fast enough, he says. And so what happens is you have the ten plagues of Exodus. First, God has Moses um, put his staff in the water and it turns to blood. And then he brings frogs on the land and then gnats on the land and flies on the land. And at every turn, Moses says, let my people go, God says, so that they may go and worship me and people don't. So, so he kills all of the livestock, all of the animals. Boils show up on people, on their backs and on, on places that they can't itch. And they're in pain and their livestock are dead. And then it starts to hail. Now, you, hail may not be like a big deal to you unless you have a thatched roof and it just comes right down on you. I mean, you think about how primitive these people were and what it would have been like to see all these things going on. Blood and frogs and gnats and flies and animals and boils and hail and locusts and then darkness so dark you could feel it. And then you come to the Passover night, the final plague. Moses finally goes and confronts the Pharaoh. He says, God's message is this. At midnight, I will go through Egypt, and every firstborn child in Egypt will die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne to the firstborn of the slave girl working at her handmill, also the firstborn of all the animals. Widespread wailing will erupt all over the country, lament such has never been and never will be again. But against the Israelites, man, woman, or animal, there won't be so much as a dog's bark so that you'll know that God makes a clear distinction between Egypt and Israel. Friends, this is their quintessential story, that God is for them and against the Egyptians. And God proves them right. God God says, yes, exactly, I'm going to take care of you. 
And, and the way this works out is this, that the Israelites had lived in Egypt for 430 years. And at the end of those 430 years, to the very day, God's entire army left Egypt, just like he said. They could not get those folks out of there fast enough to get the curse off of them is the way they thought of it. So God kept watch all night, watching over the Israelites as he brought them out of Egypt because God kept watch. All Israel for all generations will honor God by keeping watch this night, a watch night. We now call that Passover. And it was on that night that Jesus gathered his friends around him and he took a loaf of bread. It would have been flat bread because they had to get out of there so fast they wouldn't even let the bread rise. And he took the bread and and he broke it. And he began to do this meal that they knew they had done this for thousands of years, about 1,300 years since the time of Moses. It's the same meal on the same night to remember God's faithfulness. And then Jesus began to change the world. He said, do this in remembrance of thee. This is my body. No longer God for the Israelites over the Egyptians, but God for the world, for the whole world. For you and for me and for everyone that you've ever known, for every person that you've hated, for every person that's hated you, for every person. That's what Jesus was doing. God had passed over the Israelite children. And through Jesus, judgment has passed over all the world. It's the most beautiful thing you could ever know. It's transformative if we let it soak into our souls. And so the people were on their way. And when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the land of the Philistines. You'll remember the Philistines. These are the folks that had Goliath, the big giant that David had to fight. And so God was like, well, you know, the Israelites, they're kind of whiny. And they're kind of scared. So I'm not going to take them that way. Although it was what? Nearer. It was closer. That's the way you would have thought. So God's leading them out of Egypt. They've left Egypt. And, and even though going through Philistine, the Philistine territory would have been closer, they didn't do that. For God thought this. If the people face war, they may change their minds and return to Egypt. That's how wishy-washy they were. They'd been slaves for more than 400 years, but, you know, they run into just a lick of trouble. They're going to turn home. So God led the people by the, say it with me, the roundabout way. The roundabout way. Have you all ever been the roundabout way? I live in the roundabout way. The roundabout way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. It wasn't even like at the Red Sea. It's just towards the Red Sea. It's the roundabout way. The Israelites went up out of the land of Egypt prepared for battle. And why did he do this? Because God's smarter than we are. That's why. He knew flat out that if he told the Israelites, go this way, as soon as they saw Goliath or one of the other giants in the land, they just be, we're going back to slaves, safer there. That's what they would have chosen. God knows us better than we know ourselves. God is smarter than we are. Say that with me. God is smarter than we are. Absolutely true. And Jesus is the smartest man that ever lived on the entire planet. And he's wonderful. And and the thing is that God brings people into our lives to help us turn around when we can't seem to find our way. We require the roundabout way. And that's certainly true for me. Uh, When I met this darling, um, I was headed in the wrong direction as fast as I could. As fast and as hard as I could. This is Chantel in the 80s. And uh, I have never been the same since meeting her. When, when I met Chantel, um, like so many men I've met in church, their turnaround towards God and faithfulness starts with a woman. It's true for me as well. My story is no different. 
I had big plans for my life. So big, in fact, that they didn't really truly include anyone else. But Chantel helped me get in touch with my better nature. I was in New York City. I had a maid, had a dry cleaning service, a corporate apartment with a pool on my roof on the Upper East Side and the richest zip code in the United States. I was roughing it out of college. I mean, I had it all. Everything that you were supposed to have, I had, and I had it at 22. But because of Chantel, I was often miserable without her. I could tell that God was doing something remarkable with us. When my sister was getting married, I had a flight from New York LaGuardia's airport to Dallas. And then from Dallas, I was going to catch the little hopper flight to Lawton uh, for my sister's wedding in Edmond. I was going to meet up with my folks that were serving in Lawton at the time. We were going to drive up to Edmond for my sister's wedding. And we had flown um, from LaGuardia to, to DFW. And right before we got to DFW, you saw these huge clouds and all this lightning. And the pilot came on and said that we would have to make an unscheduled, almost emergency landing because we were running out of fuel. And the closest airport that was open that we could go to just happened to be Chantel's hometown of Tulsa. And so I flew to what I now believe is the only nonstop flight from New York LaGuardia to Tulsa International Airport. And when we landed, I picked up my stuff and got off the plane. And, and the wonderful flight attendant was like, sir, what are you doing? We're in Tulsa. I'm like, I know. Can you believe the good news? My mom was horrified, you know, that I didn't come home and see her and dad on the way to my sister's wedding. I happened to stop, and I just, uh, back in those days, uh, you actually used a pay phone. Uh, of course, if you've ever been to Tulsa International, you know, there's nobody there. It's, like, completely dark, and I just called up Chantel. I was like, hey, honey, you want to come get me at the airport? She was like, what? Yeah, and so she drove me to my sister's wedding. And I was like, God, what are you doing where you can even make a nonstop flight from LaGuardia to Tulsa so I can see my girlfriend. Now, that's a good God. That's a good God. And my mom gives me grief even to this day. She's like, John Mark, I know you were praying for that. I was like, hey, you know, I'm just enjoying it. So I had the opportunity to become a television reporter in Waterloo, Iowa. And I did. And Chantel would drive 13 hours in the snow to come and sit and watch me work until I would go home. She even did some camera work for me when the apartment complex uh, in the ghetto where I live caught fire from an arsonist. And I was like, honey, will you shoot my stand-up real quick? Because, you know, i got to get back to the, to the station. And while in Iowa, um, she helped me think of things that I could do uh, until we could be together. Things like teaching the youth Sunday school class. And I took a nine-month Bible study. And, and through all of that, at her urging, I never thought that any of that was odd for a 22-year-old. I just figured that's what people did. I saw the need. I loved kids. I, I took you know, full part in the life of the church. And when we were married, um, we were married at the church where Chantel was confirmed as a child. I had no particular church loyalty uh, because I was raised as a preacher's kid, just going from here to there. I, you know, churches were all kind of all the same to me. And when we moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, for me to take a job with NBC News Channel, again, it was Chantel who worked at the church. And she would get me involved in the children's ministry and the annual stewardship drive. And her boss, Reverend Cliff Summey, even took us to lunch. Uh, and about three hours later, we showed up at Duke Divinity School. I don't even know how that happened. And he just hijacked us and held us until he got me to his alma mater because he thought I should go to seminary. And so he asked me to, to preach at that church right there, St. Paul's United Methodist Church. And I did. And it was not good. It was very bad, in fact. 
I remember I got up and I actually told people that they needed time to hear from God. And I sat down for about two or three minutes. So awkward. And then I just got back up and I finished the sermon. Weird, right? Weird. Like you wouldn't want me to do that. Just weird. And so... Um, at News Channel, this was a very exciting, heady time. I thought that I had arrived. I was on the national, international desk. It was my job uh, to get news from all over the world and, and to coordinate it. Uh, this, is our, this was our uh, international headquarters. And then send it out to all 212 affiliates of the, the NBC, National Broadcasting Corporation. That was my job. I would uh, travel around the world, California, New York, wherever things would happen, and I would go, and I would get the stories, and I would write them up, and I would send them out, and we would go to dinner parties, and, and people would say, well, what's going on in the world? I said, well, let me tell you. And I wrote this story today about Rwanda, or I wrote this story about Burundi, or I wrote this story about Petrostroika and, and Russia, and, and, and that was my job. And it was really cool. And it really didn't make much of a difference. And I kept thinking I was going to make a difference in the news business for Jesus. And, and I remember one day I got so frustrated because um, there had been more than 200 seminary students mowed down in Burundi by extremists who had gone into their seminary and just mowed them down with machine guns. And we couldn't get video out of there and nobody wanted to know that story. On that same day, there was this very odd story out of France uh, where some naked Frenchmen were doing sh naked Shakespeare on the trapeze. But you couldn't show their nakedness on TV, but everybody wanted to use that as their, you know, fun little story at the end. And so I had to oversee an editor for three hours in an editor bay, digitizing flying Frenchman parts. And I thought to myself, there's got to be a better life than this. I'm not making a difference here. So we moved to Tulsa, and I went into management. Uh, I became the special projects producer since I had national and international experience. And so at 23, I was basically overseeing a news department about everything they did for sweeps and everything they did for elections. And it was in that season that, again, Chantel decided that we were going to get involved with the youth group at First Methodist Tulsa. So we did. And so we took about 300 kids uh, down to New Iberia, Louisiana, uh, and Chantel worked at the very first Bible school where white folks came in and held Bible school for an African-American church. They never had white folks in their church before. And so she worked with about 100 underprivileged little uh, black kids in New Iberia, Louisiana. Best crawfish I ever had in my life. And it was great. And then the next thing I know, she had me working in the two- and three-year-old room on Sunday mornings, and then the, the senior high youth group on Wednesday nights, and then we were in the choir. And all this seemed fairly natural to me as we took another step and another step. And so it wasn't all that odd when her folks and my folks said, well, do you want to go to um, a revival with us over at this other church that we didn't go to? And, and quite frankly, the answer was really, no, I don't. I'm, but I'll go. I mean, if that's what the whole family's doing, you want me to go, I'll go. So we're about on the second row, and uh, the guy who was a family friend of ours had done his thing. I'd seen it before. It was cool, uh, but really wasn't speaking to me. And he just said very nonchalantly, okay, before we go, I'd just like for you all to stand right where you are and just pray to the Lord, what would you like for me to do? Lord, what would you have me do? And I said, okay. Okay, Lord, what do you want me to do? And I really thought the way the Lord normally would speak to me is, you know, Feed the dog when you get home. He's hungry. Or take out the trash. Or be nice to Chantel. Or you know, write a thank you note to your grandma for whatever. That's, I mean, that's the sort of stuff God would say to me. But remember, God's smarter than we are. So the Lord said on this night, go to seminary. And I was like, what? 
I had just gotten to Tulsa about three months earlier. I mean, my back still hurt from unloading the U-Haul from the last move. And I was thinking, that doesn't seem right to me at all. And so I made the horrible mistake of asking Chantel. I was like, I think God said to go to seminary. Does that seem right to you? And she goes, oh, yes, I've thought so all along. And I was like, seriously? She's like, oh, yeah. She goes, oh, and by the way, I want to have kids. So if we're going, you better go. You know, because we don't want to have kids while we're trying to do graduate school. I was like, huh. So then, basically, I did what most people would do. I panicked. I wasn't obedient in the least. So I want you to see what this looks like in the Bible. It looks like this. As Pharaoh approached the Israelites, he looked up and he saw them, the Egyptians. They had left, but the Egyptians had figured out that they're about to lose their whole workforce. And so they're coming at them, and they were totally afraid, and they cried out in terror to God. Right? At one point, he's holding firm to that staff. He's got it. He's the man. Next moment, complete panic. That's real life. They told Moses, weren't the seminaries large enough in Egypt so that they had to take us out here in the wilderness to die? I mean, come on, Moses, great leadership. What have you done to us, taking us out of Egypt? Back in Egypt, didn't we tell you that this would happen? Didn't we tell you, Moses, leave us alone here in Egypt? We're better off as slaves in Egypt than corpses in the wilderness, right? When God calls you to something, you know what people do? We panic. That's what we do. People panic. Happens all the time. It's our natural first reaction. We forget that God knows what God's doing. And so Moses speaks to the people. He says, don't be afraid. Stand firm and watch God do his work of salvation for you today. Never forget, friends, they had been slaves for 430 years. These people didn't know how to lead themselves. Their dads didn't know how to lead them. Their grandparents didn't know how to lead them. All they knew was how to be slaves. And then Moses says this, take a good look at the Egyptians today, for you're never going to see them again. God will fight the battle for you. And you, keep your mouth shut. Zip it. You're scaring the kids. Like, really, just, the Egyptians are coming. Settle down. So what happens? Moses stretches out his hand over the sea, and God, with a terrific east wind all night, made the sea go back. And he made the sea dry ground, and the sea water split, and the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground with waters, a wall to the right and a wall to the left. And the Egyptians came after them in full pursuit, every horse and chariot and driver of Pharaoh racing into the middle of the sea. And it was now the morning watch, and God looked down from the pillar of fire. Say that with me. It was what? The pillar of fire and cloud on the Egyptian army and threw them into a panic and he clogged the wheels of their chariots and they were stuck in the mud and the Egyptians said run from Israel God is fighting on their side and against Egypt now this story is important to me because about three months after God said to seminary and I told Chantel and then I never spoke of it again I was like hmm I want you to see how how this finishes up it was now the morning watch god looked down from the say it again with me the pillar of fire we decided to have my mom and dad over for dinner and so they came to the house and as they came to the house i was changing clothes from work and i was up in our bedroom and we had one of those little duplexes where you had sort of that ski lodge effect sort of big huge fireplace in the corner uh bedrooms in the top and everybody else gathered down below and uh, this is huge staircase and I was changing clothes, and my dad yells up the stairs, Hey, Mark! And I was like, yeah. He goes, have you thought any more about seminary? I was like, oh, boy. We should not have invited them to dinner. This is going to be a beating. And I was about to kind of let him have it when I stepped through the door, and I looked down to my left at our fireplace, and there was this roaring fire going in the fireplace. 
And it was around November. I mean, it wasn't all that cold, but it, we'd been a cold snap a couple days before. And I was kind of offended. I was like, you know, that's rude. Coming in somebody's house and starting their fire. You know, you should ask about those sorts of things or turn the heat up or something. And so I was like, Dad, what are you doing? Starting a fire in my house. It's not your house, it's my house. We rented, but still, it's my house. And uh, he was like, no, I didn't do anything with that. And then I said, Chantel, did you start a fire in our fireplace? She's like, no, honey, why? I was like, because there's a big fire in our fireplace. And I looked at my mom, and her eyes were about this big. She's like, I didn't have anything to do with it. It just kind of started itself over there a couple minutes ago, and it's just like going. And I thought, hmm. Now, at this point, last week we talked about the call out of fire in the bush. This week there's the pillar of fire. You see in the Bible, fire represents God and God being serious about what God wants you to do. Now, if you're a scientist and you would like to, to know that you know, earlier in the day I had cleaned out all the coals, I thought, and put in new wood and little kindling, yes, I did. But no fire was going on. And so when my parents opened the door, uh, and we may have had the back door open, was there a draft that then you know, whooshed the, the one little coal that may have been in there to start the kindling, to start the fire? Yes, maybe so. That's fine. I don't have a problem with that. It doesn't change the fact, at the very moment that my, ga- my dad asked me if I was going to get off the fence and go to seminary, there was a roaring fire in my fireplace that none of us started. And to me, I got the deep spiritual impression that if I didn't go to seminary, God was going to burn my house down. Like he'd had enough. It was time to go. So we did. We did. The timing was too much to ignore. So we went to SMU. That's where my dad went. He graduated in 59. Uh, I graduated in 96. And so um, I was uh, worked there while I went to school. Uh, we, we moved everything. I mean, we didn't have jobs. We sold most of our furniture because we didn't know where we were going to live. Uh, we just basically showed up in Dallas and asked God to help us. Uh, I took a job in Wiley, Texas as a youth minister. It was a, basically a one to two day a week job. I would show up about 6.30 on Sunday morning and we'd go home about 10 o'clock Sunday night. Um, we'd do all the services in the morning. We'd work with the youth group, sixth graders, all the way through senior high uh, until we basically uh, couldn't stay up anymore and went. And we, we worked in the little yellow house. They bought a house. Uh, it was nasty. Um, but that's where we worked. Then from there, we got a job at Highland Park the largest United Methodist Church uh, in America at the time. This was my office. It was sweet. Uh, it was like a 20-foot ceiling and, and double-decker windows. It was amazing. And I would do weddings uh, like in the chapel and in the big sanctuary, and I would sign little documents. Uh, and it was in that season where we, we were, became pregnant with our first child, John Mark, and, and so we, we were thrilled about that. And so you can see us uh, in the big church you know, that would seat thousands of people, and then we graduated. And so I finished up my Master's of Divinity degree, um, and, and we were serving at Highland Park. My graduation was even at Highland Park. It was the most amazing thing. And then the people of Oklahoma said, hey, it's time for you to come home, and, and we'll, we'll get you a really good appointment, you know, just like Highland Park. I went to Minko and Friendship. So I went from a church that had 12,000 members to this church who had seven, seven. And they had outhouses. They didn't have running water. And Chantel was nine months pregnant with John Mark. No heat and air. No bathrooms. We made a quick trip back to Minko every Sunday. And then, after basically two and a half years, three years of this, I became an elder in the United Methodist Church. 
And we thought to ourselves, well, hey, this is awesome. You're not going to get smaller than seven. We were wrong. They asked us to start this church from zero. So we did. And we took a step into God's faithfulness. And we were terrified. And we panicked. And we did it. And God's calling you to do something too. I love the way Frederick Buechner says this. He says, the place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. They meet. That's where you are to be. And I take great joy in that. It's been our deep gladness to serve here and to grow here and to buy the land here. And when we, when we moved here, um, we basically, uh, Noel was born right after. And so here's a photo of, of me and our oldest, John Mark, and Noel when he was just a newborn. And then people from all over the state that I didn't even know, people from St. Andrews down in Oklahoma City and, and over in Shawnee, Wesley, they came and they helped walk neighborhoods. They, were, they, they just knew that we were trying to start something new up here in Edmond because we didn't have a, a Methodist church here in West Edmond. So they're like, well, we'll help, we'll walk. You know, they didn't know me from Boo. And we gathered around uh, on the corner and, and we asked God to do something wonderful here, that everybody would be welcome, that it would be a new kind of church for new people moving to town. And we did that. And we moved into uh, Edmond North High School. Uh, and it was this Christmas... Uh, that we would hang banners in the band room and we would set up candles and we would do anything we could to try to attract people. And I think on that service, we had 16 people. 16. And that included the band and the nursery and us. I think we had like two people that weren't paid to be there. Needless to say, we had our hands full at home and at church. And people were building houses all around us. It's still that way. Chantel helped, of course, not in a paid way because we didn't have any money to do that. Uh, we received $50,000 from the conference. 35000 of it went to my salary. Uh, the other fifteen went to mail, to mail out to people to try to get them to come. And that was it. The money was gone. And so you can see little Noah in her lap as she's you know, sending letters to people moving to town, just trying to get anybody to come. So we're at Edmund North High School in uh, 2000. Uh, we were able to stay there about a year until they remodeled uh, where we were worshiping. And, and a year, at our big year anniversary where we'd been, uh, we had a, a party out here at the land, uh, and, and you may recognize these people. These are actually the Martins that are back at our church. Uh, this is Allison, who graduated high school uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And this is Miss Anna, right there in our youth group. We baptized uh, little Miss Anna. And she's back here as a, as a full member of our church. And so we, it took us about three years, but we paid off this land. Uh, we paid $9,714 an acre for it. It's worth a little more than that now. We're very happy about it. Um, and after we paid it off, we went to Disney World because we were just plum tired. And so uh, it, it's been great being the pastor here. Little Noah had a good time, and we did things like Okie Dokie Daddy Day uh, over at Washington Irving. Um, and this is my oldest, John Mark. He's now in his second year of college. We'd go to St. Ute's Day with the youth group and uh, you know, do Frontier City and those sorts of things. And then we moved into Cheyenne Middle School, and this was what Easter looked like when we were at the middle school. That's what church looked like for us. That's what church looked like for us. Uh, this is a little video uh, that happened because one of the things that I'm so grateful for are people like Carolyn, um, our lay leader. And this was our last service. Uh, that was our district superintendent at the time uh, in, uh, over at Cheyenne. Uh, this is Bradley who's now running the cameras over there. And uh, we drove from Cheyenne Middle School to, to the building that's just right over there. And uh, we drove very fast. And you see. Um, and friends, in just about three weeks, that will be exactly ten years ago. 
10 years ago. And we came in. There's Carolyn right on the stage. Way to go, Carolyn. And, uh, just, and there's John Markey. This, and this is what we do. And so for the last decade, either there uh, or here, uh, we've met every week. Oftentimes three times a week. Uh, just for worship and youth group and other sorts of things. And so we moved in this building. Our first worship service looked like this. Um, and by 2012, uh, I had gained weight and got some gray hair. That's okay. We're thrilled to be here. And then about two years ago, um, we left that building and came over to this building. And we continue to grow. In the last two years, we've grown about 32%. Uh, when we entered that building, we went from 122 people to 244 people in a week. That was difficult, but wonderful. Uh, and now, uh, depending on the season, we're uh, most, most weekends between 600 and 700 people in average attendance. The Lord is faithful. And we ask that you would continue to reach out to people and to hear your call with what God's asking you to do. Do something wonderful. And so your action steps are these, friends. I want you to think about your call. About what God's calling you to do. Because God's going to do it. You just have to play your part. Where do your natural abilities and talents intersect with the world's deep needs? Where is that? And what might God be calling you to do? And if you don't know, ask your spouse. Ask somebody in your small group. Ask somebody in the church. Because more than likely, they know it better than you do. And who could you talk to about God's call on your life? Andy and I are happy to do that. Other people in church are happy to do that. But here, here might be the most important question. What will you do? Not just think about it. Just not talk about it. Not just ignore it. But what will you really do once you allow God to get that panic off of you? We've had more than 13 people go into full-time ministry out of our church. And that's something wonderful and amazing. But you know something even more amazing? We have the potential to have 631 people in ministry every day. And that changes the world. Every day, right where you are, right where God has you. And Eugene Peterson puts it this way, and I think he's exactly right. He says, all the persons of faith I know are sinners. That's why we start every service that way. We're doubters. We're uneven performers. That's absolutely true. And we are secure not because we are sure of ourselves, but because we trust that God is sure of us. And in seminary, we used to say it like this. Friends, God doesn't call the qualified. God qualifies the called and that includes you and everyone who will say yes to jesus